This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. There is a lot going on. Talk about uh, a self-testing kit for home. Uh, That happening in the United States. Over in Europe, though, you did see a protest over Germany's strategy to quell the virus turning violent. So, yeah, it's really rough out there. And this is a place environment we all know far too well. Back with us to see what she is seeing and concerned about is Alyssa Rapp, CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions. She is uh, with us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. Um, Alyssa, good to have you here. How are you? And when you see these headlines, uh, you're out there in the Midwest. I mean, that's really been a tough spot. It has, Carolyn. Thanks for having me back. We've seen a rise in surge across the country, candidly. Our uh, incidences of exposure or even positivity in our own company amongst our 250 employees across nine states and 35 hospitals is pretty much even. We've seen additional you know, uh, exposure or positivity in New York, Tennessee, Texas, Kentucky, and it is obviously back. I'm not an epidemiologist, as you know, so mm-hmm. I know that the vi- viral load of the virus changes over time and it makes it easier to transmit. So hopefully people who are getting this version of this horrible COVID-19 flu are not going to be as sick if they're healthy and young, but it is still, it is back. The the numbers are real. We're seeing it across the country. Well, and it's interesting. We just talked a story, we just talked about a story, uh, Charlie Pellet and I, about how COVID is, you know, ravaging those long-term care centers. And we know that's where the elderly population is. We understand those numbers, but I was just talking to an individual here at Bloomberg and uh, talked about her nephew succumbing to the virus. So we do understand that as much as we know some of COVID-19 is predictable, we also know that there are outliers and we don't know still a lot about this virus. Having said that, the vaccine and the developments we've had over the last week and a half from Pfizer and from Moderna, what's your takeaway there? Oh, I find it incredibly encouraging. I think the, the vaccines are gonna be game changers, needless to say, and the only real question in my mind as a healthcare service provider, is a question around distributions. Right. They need to be stored between uh, 50 and 100 below Fahrenheit. Then, obviously, we need the military and FedEx and UPS working together on a, on a combined distribution strategy that leverages single sites that have these massive freezers as well as mobile sites. And I think creativity and, and real genius in terms of logistics and planning is going to be what needs to happen between now and, say, April, May, June when we get to true general population rollout of the virus. But for frontline healthcare workers, I'm still pretty bullish and optimistic because if those vaccines can start happening in our major metropolises and major sites in December, the second shot in January, whether it's the Pfizer, Moderna, or any other vaccine, that means that if we can get first responders and frontline healthcare workers vaccinated, then the most at risk, then the, then the rollout further, there should be an abatement of the spread and it should provide some relief to our healthcare system. Well, and you've got to be thinking, Alyssa, about your workers specifically, right? And making sure that they are frontline workers uh, and they need to have access to this vaccine. Um, You know, I'm curious how you're approaching it. Would you make sure that they're among the first to get it? Are your workers comfortable getting it? And are you concerned about having access ultimately to the vaccine as we kind of try and figure out the the distribution and logistics uh, problems of getting the vaccine out? That's a great, those are all great questions. I feel 
confident in our frontline healthcare workers' ability to get access to the vaccine because we follow each hospital's protocol for all things clinical when we work with our hospital partners and if their frontline teams are going to be asked to vaccinate ours will too and so if it's being provided to hospitals across the country for their frontline workers i am hopeful and confident we will get that access and i think that the first 20 million uh doses of the vaccine seem pretty locked and loaded for december so again if we can make sure that that happens and nothing stops it i think the frontline and first responders should be in good good shape. It's really that next wave of rollout, Carol, that I personally am curious about once our frontline healthcare workers are taken care of and the countries after the prioritization for the for the elderly and the most at risk, how then do we ensure that mass distribution happens? I'm confident by the spring we'll have mass production of vaccine mass distribution becomes a bigger challenge. Yeah, listen, I think about that too, in terms of it getting out. And, you know, we've done a lot of reporting about that's kind of our next big headache. And because, you know, countries have relationships and deals with various um, drug makers and so, so you really do wonder, you know, what kind of horse trading might ultimately be going, you know, going on. And that kind of terrifies me, especially when I think about people who really need it. When I think about developing markets, I mean, it's really going to be, I think, a logistics nightmare. Globally, it's going to be challenging. And remember, the regular flu vaccine can be stored at 37 degrees Fahrenheit mm-hmm. and below. And, and even that sometimes poses challenges. And this 100 degree below is, is a real thing. But I know that the biggest sites of points of distribution are already shoring up for those capabilities. I'm confident that in our country, specifically the ingenuity around distribution and logistics means that we should be able to come up with a mobile um, mechanism for distributing even this very unusually cold uh, uh, vaccine. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I think yeah. that we'll see a lot of opening up come next summer. So Alyssa, I know we've talked about schools. I know last time around we talked about, um, and I think you, you said that you don't think children are super spreaders because uh, we were talking about schools reopening. I have to say, you know, it's interesting. I'm getting a lot of emails from around the newsroom about, uh, see, look, New York City schools are, are closing. I actually think cities are being smart that as soon as they start to see numbers go up uh, in certain regions around the country, as soon as they start to see those numbers go up. I mean, New York remembers how bad it was. And I think they quickly moved to say, we got we to gotta pull back. And that's how we hopefully can maybe prevent this from becoming New York City back in March, April, and May. Yeah, there, you know, there are two different questions, right, Carol? One is, are children super spreaders? And there's an abundance of data, and you've had many people on your show that have talked about how they may or may not be, and most right. likely aren't. But there are other stakeholders, and stakeholders are teachers and the elderly family members of uh, children in schools who are living in multi-generational generational households. So I think it, the answer to whether to keep them open or closed is a, is a function of from whose stakeholders' eyes you're looking. And I think that it's likely... Um, I, and probable that many public schools will end up closing post Thanksgiving, uh, pre winter break, quote unquote, or even right after winter break, because mm-hmm. as we discussed earlier, this vaccine access is likely going to be healthcare workers and uh, first responders first, and then hopefully in the second wave, as soon as January, even teachers and others who we consider essential workers. So I'm hopeful that once teachers are have access more broadly to the vaccine, right. then there'll be even greater comfort with keeping the schools open. But I think it's likely that to continue to, quote, flatten the curve, you can agree or disagree, but I think it's likely that schools will close for some portion of winter. Yeah, and I guess what I was kind of saying is, right, I, I think I agree with you because just my own experience with my daughter in school, like it, the schools have been... 
I feel like, knock on wood, we're not necessarily talking about colleges and universities. They have had their own struggles. Um, but I think at large, things have actually gone, gone fairly well. And I guess what I'm is interesting is that you're seeing whether it's the west coast whether it's here major cities who saw it so badly in the springtime like we remember this it wasn't that long ago right and we don't want to go back to it so that you start to as soon as you start to see those numbers go up you kind of rein things in just to hopefully slow it down and more importantly hopefully to stop it from spiking once again into that kind of out of control area yeah and i think that it's also a function of how things have been managed, right? If we're in a hybrid learning environment in our public school district mm-hmm. here in the suburbs of Chicago, and you know all the children have plexiglass shields, everyone's masks, or yeah. the classrooms eight students or less, we, we certainly may end up in a virtual learning mode for a portion of winter, just like most public schools. But none of the transmission in our, our suburban school district has happened within the schools. It's happened from people bringing it in from the outside. So that right. gives, I think, many parents great comfort that schools are safe. Kids are safe in schools. It's the community spread is going to be what it is. But again, I, I stand by my earlier claim that I don't personally believe from the data I've read that children under 10 are super spreaders by and large themselves. Mm-hmm. But I understand when taking into account multiple stakeholder groups why schools may choose and districts, public districts may choose to close for a portion of winter until these vaccines are more widely disseminated. Right. Well said. Hey, listen, um, I want to go back to something you said, Alyssa, because I think it's really important. And we've only got about a minute or so left here about you said logistically, we're going to need military in partnership with FedEx. People have been saying since March, April that we are at war. It's a health war and we need mm-hmm. kind of a military, you know, a military aspect and reaction to it, if you will. And we really kind of haven't gotten that. Do you think a new administration will move in that direction? I think that it's likely that a new administration would be willing to leverage all tools at its disposal, including the U.S. military, to ensure the broadest dissemination of this vaccine as quickly as possible. And I also believe that our U.S. military is probably uniquely qualified to provide support to commercial parties like FedEx and UPS in that way. So I really hope for a public-private partnership in terms of distribution of the vaccine. I think it gives us the greatest probability of the greatest dissemination the fastest. If we don't get that, what what, what, what then, just quickly? I'm not thinking about it yet. I'm, I'm thinking <laughs> positively here, Carol. We're going to get it done so we can have more normal lives by next summer. Uh, uh, hallelujah. I'm op- I'm an optimist too. And I'd like to get back to a more normal life. Um, Alyssa, thank you so much uh, for finding time once again for us. Alyssa Rapp, she is Chief Executive Officer of Surgical Solutions, joining us on the phone from Deerfield, Illinois. And again, uh, watching those virus headlines, uh, but optimistic about the vaccine. And ultimately, if we do it right in terms of how we get it out logistically and the distribution, we can move much closer and much uh, faster to a more uh, normal life. Uh, So that's what we're kind of all hoping for. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week and the cover story this week. And I got to say, I don't know if I can say this, Joel Weber, can I just say I got a peek at the cover art? You did last night. (laughs) I have to say it truly encapsulates the essence of this story. 
Yeah, it, it's a fun one, um, and this is one that um, I think we were we, we've been interested in for a while because look like. Uh, the staff of Business Week has a lot of cats and dogs at home, um, and there have been acquisitions that were made during the <laughs> pandemic. And if you have a dog and go to a dog park like I do, you also recognize that there were many, many, many more dogs in this neighborhood than there were before the pandemic. And so one true. of the big beneficiaries of this has been Chewy the online pet retailer that does pet deliveries, and that's what our story's about. All right, so of course, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. Sorry, I jumped the gun there, but I wanted to bring you in because I love the cover. Uh, and let's also bring in Bloomberg News Wealth reporter Anders Mellon, uh, reporting for Business Week and on the phone from Orlando, Florida. Joel on the phone from the uh, remote access from Brooklyn. It is, and I gotta say, Joel, it's one of those things in the shutdown that as I would walk my dog, Scout, around the very quiet neighborhood, I would see boxes of things, and I often saw chewy boxes on the curb yeah and you know they're coming to our house too um <laughs> uh it's actually in one of the, our story meetings it turns out that you know there's a lot of co-op apartments in new york city that aren't supposed to have pets oops and chewy boxes are outing them because it's like oh look where'd <laughs> that come from dog food delivery <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> So, um, so the the story of Chewy, though, I think it's it's one of these amazing ones because it you know the, the company's been around for for nine years, uh, started basically by a couple guys who just realized they were they were going to get into the um, jewelry business, mm. and then realized wait a second there could be a bigger opportunity in pets, and they basically scrapped it out for nine years, and in the process of that sort of faded from uh, the company and the company now has a has a new CEO and the story sort of starts with Anders crunching some numbers and realizing that he's actually incredibly highly compensated. How, <laughs> how highly compensated is he, Anders? Uh, about 108 million uh, for 2019. That's what brought me on to, to this story. I, I, um, we ran our highest paid uh, CEOs list this summer and Sumit Singh made 108 million last year, and I turned to my editor and said, "Who in the world is Sumit Singh?" And uh, turns out he's the CEO of Chewy, and that's yeah, that's where it all started. Right, and it's kind of like, what is Chewy? I have to say, we have a, a market guest who comes on, and every time she's like, "Buy Chewy, buy Chewy, buy Chewy." I mean, this is a business, you know, and I, and you put it in the story, uh, Anders, that it's very much kind of akin to Amazon in its early days. Yeah, it really is. It's it's. What sets it apart from Amazon, Amazon was a model for much of the, the quickness, the ease, uh, and the pricing. But what really sets Chewy apart is the fact that you actually have a customer service number to call. And if you call it, there is a person that responds to you within six seconds and is willing to talk to you four hours, if that's what you feel like, about your pet, about pet food, about the fact that, you know, anything. I've, I've heard stories of customer service agents who've literally been on the phone for several hours with, nice. with uh, pet owners that call in. One of the things, Carol, that I think is really interesting about the business is, yeah. you know, Amazon, when it started, it had that one area of expertise mm -hmm. that it just nailed, which was books. It was right. like, how do we bring as many books as we possibly can online and do um, e-commerce as a as a bookstore, right? Right. And and I think Chewy actually kind of like it's almost like they surveyed the landscape and said, "What's the thing that we could have recurring payments with that Amazon hasn't thought to do yet?" 
and how do we figure out what that is and then do it at warp speed effectively? And they recognize that pets are this thing. It's a it, the number in the story, ninety nine billion dollars a year um, <sighs> being spent by Americans on pets. If you could get one slice of that, it's a great business. And what they figured out was that there's a lot of things that you can do that are recurring payments, whether it's dog food deliveries yep. or medications, and all of those things are just cruise controlled. It's a subscription revenue model. And it has just allowed them to go sort of warp speed. And they were on a pretty good trajectory before the pandemic. And then the pandemic really played to it. And so, Andrews, tell us about what they, how, how they've really capital, capitalized on everything this year. Yeah, they've already, in the first two quarters, they added more customers than in all of the prior fiscal year. Jeez. And they're on track to finally uh, turn EBITDA positive this year, uh, and they are also on track to hit roughly $7 billion in revenue up from, if I don't misremember, around 4.9 in 2019. So it's, it's really supercharged them this year, and they were sort of kind of like Peloton, just perfectly yeah. in position to take advantage of, of the coronavirus. We've been buying our scout. She's a little Irish terrier, man. She's been getting toys, you know, and we're, we've got a subscription thing that we do every month too. And it's like, yep, we just, we don't even think twice about it. We're like, it's essential. It's kind of crazy. So wait a minute though. We said they were like kind of Amazon, right? In many ways. And it sounds like they are too also like Amazon for a long time. They're not profitable. Not yet. And you know, that's a, uh, story that is not too unfamiliar these days that you uh, set aside profitability and instead focus on on growing very quickly and that's what they did and the founder ryan cohen and his team they actually ripped the page out of amazon's playbook and said we're going to plow every dollar of free cash flow that we get into marketing and customer acquisition and but he points out in the story that at any point they could have turned off that marketing spigot and the company would have been profitable even back in 2015, 2016. So it's really about, you know, running and, and getting scale um, as long as you can, as long as your capital base allows you to do that. And that's what they that's what they've done. And that's why they're so big today. And and actually, I, I love it because the the CEO brought this up when when you guys kind of put it to him is this this flywheel um, this hmm. this idea that and it's a vaunted one that Amazon's really excelled is sort of like once you can start spinning off cash, it feeds all the other aspirations that you that you have. I, what, what did he have to say about his flywheel? <laughs> well, the, essentially saying that it's, I mean it's a very sturdy model as long as you have as long as you're not burning too much cash then then. That's something that you can keep up. And as long as you keep acquiring customers at a fast enough clip, then, then that flywheel keeps up. And thanks to Chewy's focus on auto ship and the fact that people have to return to them every once in a while to buy cat litter and food and, and so on, and, and you can put that on, on automation, um, that really helps to underwrite mm this whole model and it, it works. Anders, really quickly. So Summit Singh, the CEO of Chewy, is up there with Elon Musk, Apple's Tim Cook, uh, some other well-known CEOs as among the highest paid. Does he deserve to be there considering what he's done at the company and just got about 30 seconds? Uh, well, I think if you're, if you bought Chewy right after the IPO and, and you still hold it now, I'm sure you're very happy uh, regardless of how much he got paid. Um, we spoke to some former employees who pointed out that yeah. the company was in excellent shape already when he took over. Interesting. So. 
kind of feel kind of feel bummed out for the two founders though man um it's a great great read and i told you you got to check out the cover because i think i'm gonna go home and frame it because it's just adorable you're listening to bloomberg business week with carol masser on bloomberg radio all right, so this story definitely caught my attention. I was reading in pretty early this morning on my way into 731 Lexington here at Bloomberg headquarters. It's a top story in my view at this hour, since as we watch closely COVID-19's impact on our economy and its recovery, which has been so well described, I think, by Peter Atwater over at William Mary as the K-shaped recovery, which illustrates some Americans, they have been largely untouched by the pandemic. For others, the lower leg of the K, it has been catastrophic. And maybe there's some folks in between that as some of the relief efforts start to come undone and stop, they're going to be in a tough way. This story is among the most read on the Bloomberg. It is about the year-end fiscal cliffs that are approaching for millions of Americans. Let's get into it with Reed Pickert. She's U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg, and she is joining us on the phone in New York City. Reed, um, this is an important story. I really do think everybody has to stop listen because if we're worried about kind of where we are because of COVID, if we're worried about what's going to happen in the economy, especially with the lack of stimulus, you really lay it out what's at risk. So first of all, give us the big picture. Yeah, of course. And thank you for so much for having me on to talk about this story. Sure. Um, so I guess the big, the big picture of this is that there is a wide range of programs that are scheduled to expire at the end of the year. And they range everything from um, two federal unemployment insurance plan uh, programs to a national eviction moratorium to a freeze on student loans. And you know, as you were talking about this K-shaped recovery, the, the people that are really going to feel the brunt of the pain from these expirations are, are really those who are currently still out of work. And um, these programs, you know, they have a, a wide range of use, but mm-hmm. I would say the, the biggest impact is definitely going to be from the expiration of those two unemployment insurance programs. 12 million um, people, so you say, right? We need roughly 12 million? Yeah. Yes, so the Century Foundation um, put out a report this morning where they estimated it would be about 12 million people that would be cut off from their unemployment insurance on December 26th. And for these people, this has been an, an extraordinary lifeline during the pandemic. And it's, it's two parts. There's the folks that, you know, prior to now wouldn't typically be eligible for, pin, for jobless benefits. And those are the people who are on a program called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance, PUA. So that's your gig workers, your self-employed workers. Um, and, and they have gotten these programs, uh, these, you know, a check each week that has helped support them during this, this time where, you know, a lot of people aren't taking Ubers. And a lot of these jobs don't have the same kind of demand um, that they normally would. Um, and then the other program is very similar to what we've seen in past recessions. Um, it's called PEUC for short, but essentially it's an extension of jobless benefits for those who have exhausted their regular state benefits. So we saw this in the 2007 to 2009 recession as well. Um, but whether people have used up the full number of weeks that they have or not, yeah. Unless Congress acts, it's it's set to expire at the end of December as well. Reed, and I want to go to some of the other, um, you know, specific programs that you say, you know, will come to an end and that really put a lot of Americans at risk. But the one thing I like about your story is, yep, you go through these, you lay out the numbers, you lay out the research, but you also talk to Americans and what it means. Like, tell me about Larry Long of Willow Grove, Pennsylvania. 
Yeah, of course. And and I'd like to say that there were more people that, um, for space purposes, we couldn't fit them into yeah. the story. But Larry was um, someone that really stuck out to me. Um, I, I chatted with him, and he's one of um, he's receiving the PUA that um, that unemployment assistance for for those aren't tip, who tip, aren't typically eligible. But mm-hmm. um, he is a 63 year old black man um, in a town that's a little bit outside of Philadelphia, and per before the pandemic, he made his income by basically helping to plan charity events and um, corporate parties. And as you can imagine, as soon as pan- as the pandemic hit, he said that for a couple weeks, he was just receiving cancellation email after cancellation email. And um, so since then, he um, has been getting these pandemic unemployment assistance payments and for the summer, it worked out okay because um, the CARES Act, which was the main fiscal relief bill that was passed back in March, um, provided this extra $600 a week in mm-hmm. unemployment assistance. And when he had that extra $600, he was able to make it work. Um, but as soon as those $600 payments ended and expired at the end of, of July, the bills have just been piling up. Um, so when I was talking to him about what, I mean, what day-to-day looks like him for right now, he, you know, said that with the amount that he's getting, he's mm. really just trying to put food on the table. Um, and he's, uh, has negotiated with his, um, his landlord to try to make a rent agreement payment, but, um, he's, he's really nervous about the, the culmination of running out of, PUA, mm-hmm. but also of the eviction mor- national eviction moratorium expiring at the end of the year as well. Right. You said um, he's he's worried about losing his home. And he's also worried he's, you know, as you write in your story, he's an older black man with a touch of diabetes. So he's scared to death just about survival. Hey, just quickly, just got about 30, 40 seconds here on the tenant evictions. What do we need to know about that? Yes. Yeah, so on the evictions front, um, this is basically... Um, has been a national um, a national policy to keep people in their homes and prevent landlords from evicting their tenants when they couldn't fully pay. Um, and that has been a saving grace for a lot of people. Um, but the problem now, now, of course, is that eviction moratorium is um, set to expire at the end of the year. So people are heading into January, perhaps with several months behind them of not having fully paid their rent or not have paid their rent at all. Um, and could very much face eviction because the fact is that these landlords have their bills to pay as well. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that with a lot of folks in the real estate industry. The problem is, you know, know, I think about December 31st, right? People are often like, oh, a new year, you know, thinking about what's to come, promising. And then for many, that's a deadline that could be really, really tough. Um, I'm going to put your story out on Twitter because you go into all the programs and all the specifics. So thank you so much, Reed. Really appreciate you bringing it to us. Reed Pickert, she's U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from New York. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Craig Hodges, CEO and Portfolio Manager of the Hodges Funds. $1.5 billion in assets under management based in Dallas and joining us on the phone from there on a day Wednesday where we've got stocks pretty much hovering at their lows of the session. So we're down about, as Charlie mentioned, down about nine tenths of a percent on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, down 279 points. Uh, S&P 500 also down almost nine tenths of a percent at 35.78. And the NASDAQ just down about half a percent, down 65 points. So Craig Hodges, nice to have you here. How are you doing? I know there's been some rough COVID numbers out in Dallas. I've got a bunch of family out in Texas. How are you doing? Really, yeah. Yeah. yeah, doing well. We, we, you know, we've been pretty fortunate not to get hit too hard. And I think I think it's you know fairly under control here, but uh, but but you know the numbers you see do scare you, so you 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 have to continue to take uh, to take heed, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Well, how do you have to? What does it mean for investors? Do they have to take heed as well? You know, I I think that they do. Um, we've we've had an interesting situation. You know, we manage money and we handle a lot of individual accounts, probably over six hundred. And I think throughout the industry, what you saw around the election time, starting at about uh, September, is people raise a pretty good uh, cash position in their accounts, not to predict what would happen, but just because of the volatility and the uncertainty of it. Well, you know, there wasn't hardly any volatility, and the market has continued to move up. So I believe what's happened. Since the election, even though it's even though it's uh, you know hasn't been finalized, although everyone knows what will happen, um, is that people are putting that money back to work. So I think that's what's driven the market here in the last you know month or so. That being said, I think it's probably a little ahead of itself. Um, it, it, I, did a, I did a conference call with a bunch of great money managers last night, mm-hmm. and the optimism was flowing. And anytime you see that... Makes you, me want to run for the exit. Exactly, exactly. So I don't look for anything uh, you know terrible, but I think the market could be uh, a little ahead of itself. Why are money managers so enthusiastic? What, what were they saying on that call? Well, there's been so much disruption in there, in the marketplace. And there's been stocks that have done fantastic this last year and a half, and there's been stocks that have done horribly. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see the ones that That makes that a market, really, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the, and the ones that have lagged, that still have good, good business opportunities, are really starting to perform. So I think, and, and, and that's what a lot of these people, and not everyone is in the, you know, the, the, the fang and the top, you know, six stocks that have driven everything. Um, there's another market out there that's kind of been the have-nots, if you will. And so, um, and that's what, that's what we're doing here at, at Hodges Funds and Hodges Capital, is there's a, just a bevy of stocks that have not per, per participated that you're starting to see all of a sudden get some breath and, and start to move. How frustrated, though, are you guys to be in the small cap space? And I know they're starting to oh, have yeah. their day a little bit, but I'm looking yeah. at your Hodges small cap fund. You're up about 3.5%. Uh, it's been a struggle. It has been a struggle for you know going on three years, and although I will say this, um, I noticed that uh, the small cap performance, the Russell 2000, 81 percent of their of the stocks in the Russell 2000 are above their 200-day moving average on the chart, and being very technically you know a positive. That's right. the most since 2013. So it really looks like things are starting to turn, and you know these things go in cycles, and we, it, it's very it's very understandable why the large cap, you know, stocks have moved so well. It's been basically the ETF craze that's driven a lot of that. But there will be a time and place for small caps, and we really and and, and they've had really nice outperformance for I'd say about the the past two months or so. 
All right. Interesting. Um, so talk to us about some of the names, because my understanding is among the major themes that you are interested in uh, is kind of de-urbanization and businesses yes. related to that. What specifically are you talking about? Are you talking about the exodus from, from cities? Yeah, you're seeing because You of believe COVID- that's really going to stick? Oh, my gosh. Well, you saw this in the 70s happen, and it lasted for, for, you know, anywhere from five to eight years, depending on the data. But it was miserable in the cities. There was economic, there was crises and so on and so forth. I mean... Well, it's not just the the unrest and the, the COVID that's driving people out. It's the fact that all of a sudden... You don't have to have an hour and a half commute to get to work. You can work from home or you can you can live two states away and live wherever you want and still work at whatever firm. I've seen where 30 percent of the companies out there are saying they'll never bring these people back into the office. They'll let them work remotely. So that's going to drive people to the suburbs. And you add on the fact that you have historically low interest rates, the millennials, which is the biggest demographic in the history of the world, you know, there's they're now at that age, they're they're, you know, now at that age where they're moving out, they're getting married, they're buying homes, and right. it's also economic in that it's better, it's much, much better financially to own than to rent, especially with these low rates. And then we've got this shortage of housing. So it's not just the housing stocks that we like, it's everything related to those. And you're talking about your retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's and, mm-hmm. and you know, companies that, that do lawn and guarding and remodeling and, you know, things like that, even like the home gym business is a phenomenal thing that's happened. Pet Pets and pet supplies and, and all these things. The mattress business is really booming right now. Um, and so there's many ways to play this thing. And like I said, I think this, I think this will last for years and not just, uh, not just be a, you know, a flash in the pan, if you will. All right. So if you had to commit new money, one of the new names or one of the names you like is Taylor Morrison, you would be committing to money, money there? Yes, we would. They're in great markets. Um, they it, it, it's one of the, the least expensive trading right around book value. And you, you've seen most of these homebuilders have made tremendous moves, and it's made a good move. I mean, it's up 15% so far this year. We've seen, right. you're right, the home builders have really been on a rise, low mortgage yeah. rates, and as you said, some of the trends of people uh, yeah. moving out, and also the supply has been down. Yeah. And and historically, these things are feast or famine. But like I said, I think there's because of the shortage and because of, the, you know, we have about three months supply of housing. I think this is a trend that's going to last for, for a considerable time. So yeah, I, I, and they're still very inexpensive. These stocks are some of the most inexpensive of the entire market. Yeah. Taylor Morrison's got a forward looking P.E. of about not quite 11, just under it and a current P.E. of about 6.6. Um, interesting, interesting. Just quickly, 30 seconds, Rocket Mortgage. Same story. Yeah, it, it, we believe Rocket will, will be a, the dominant, you know, brand in mortgage and refinancing, and they have unbelievable scale opportunities in that company. And um, you know, they're not just a refinance firm; they're actually because of mm-hmm. young people being more comfortable with doing everything on their phones. There's more and more people going this route. They think their their market share will go from 10 where it is now to 25 percent by 2030, and that will be a, a, a juggernaut of a company. 42 billion dollar market. A calf company. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, Going to leave it there. Um, really appreciate it. Craig Hodges, CEO, Portfolio Manager of the Hodges Funds, on the phone from Dallas. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.